This episode of Roderick on the Line is sponsored by Slack, the messaging app for Teams. Slack consolidates all your work communications into one place and makes them instantly searchable and available on any device. Slack is free to use for as long as you want with as many users as you want. Start using Slack today by visiting slack.com slash supertrain. Beep. Beep boop. Bleep bleep bleep. Beep pop beep more. How's it going? Wow. It's going good. I, it's going great. Yeah. Oh, so good. So good. I was just uh I was just listening to some hold music. Um and uh the hold music was the maybe the best, most appropriate hold music I'd ever heard in all the years. <laughs> What's that? It was one lonely violin playing a kind of gypsy funeral music. <laughs> That's a very interesting choice. <laughs> you know, and so often now you go you get on hold music and it's just like or some terrible thing. I've never understood that. And this was like just one violin. Just like Tevye. But something mournful. Super mournful. Tevye standing on the roof of his shtetl, uh, just playing this funereal single violin. And I was just like, this is the greatest. And it, it was kind of, you know, it was a scratchy old system. I was like, why aren't all, why isn't all hold music like this? I just, I seriously want this. It's, it is comporting with my mood. Yeah, I you know I've, there's so much about holds, and there must be reason they do it as, the way that they do. But like, there seems like there's these worst practices of, <laughs> of things where, like, you know, f- the, the, ultimately, as the person who's on the phone, um, mm-hmm. ideally you want to speak as quickly as possible. But if you can't speak as quickly as possible, it's nice to be able to like do other stuff, or you know. So you know, I the thing is, what drives me crazy, especially if you're on like with a like a Comcast type company, is it breaks in, you hear the click. And you're like, oh, take it off speaker or whatever. Here we, here we go. And, and you get to hear the click, and then the music stops, and they go into an ad. Yeah. Where, you know, so, I mean, I almost feel like I wish they would just have some kind of a tone or something. I don't know. That's the wrong approach. But then also, like you say, the systems are so shitty. Everything's all, like, jumpy. If it was good music, it would it would sound like the worst AM radio, like, inside of a fish tank. Right. Yeah. Well, and the the, 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 the phone tree system that I just tried to navigate said you know for one press for english press one so i pressed one and they said for uh for the thing you're not interested in press one for the thing you're not interested in also press two for the thing you are interested in press three and so i pressed three they said for the the permutation of the thing that you are interested in that you're not interested in press one for the permutation of the thing that you are interested in that you're not interested in press two for the permutation you are interested in press three i press three but it's like stuff you should have already been that right. shouldn't be there because you've already dismissed that. Yeah, right. And here we go. And so, and I do that three or four times, and then I get and I, and finally the recorded message says for the thing for the exact reason that you are calling, press one. And I'm like, here we go. And I pressed one, and it gave me a minute long recording of a voice telling me everything that I already knew, and couldn't have been to this place in their phone tree without knowing. Right. And then at the end of the phone mess at the end of that message there was no further option to progress to the next level. 
So it was. You basically the, made it to an announcement. It was the ultimate. <laughs> may, I made it here to an announcement that is reading from a PowerPoint demonstration. Oh God! And a, a PowerPoint demonstration of how to how to have be the most basic. And uh, and then it was just like to repeat this, press one to go back to the menu. And so at that point, all you can do is go operator, 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 zero, zero, zero. Right, right. And I normally do that with without even listening to the first thing. But today I felt generous. I was like, I'm going to follow this phone tree all the. I'm going to go up into the highest branches of this tree, where the view will be spectacular. I wonder if part of it. I think about like when you're trying to write something long or when you're dealing with a big project. I mean, with me, like, for example, trying to write that book a few years ago, I was constantly torn between these two impulses. There was the one impulse to just make, 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 make new stuff, <clears throat> which is, I think, the, a good impulse when you're drafting. But then there's the other impulse, which is like, yeah, but you should also keep outlining and reviewing what you've done already. Not mm-hmm. revising, but like it's this compulsion of like feeling like I have to make sure that this is going to make sense with what I've already done. And I wonder if in a phone tree like that, you take that model and spread it across different business units and you have different people contributing different parts to the tree. Uh-huh. And there's not anybody who's project managing how sensible it is to hear something at a given point, And maybe it's not totally up to date. You know what I mean? Yes. I could see that really in a large, even in a, especially a medium sized corporation, I would say where you wouldn't have dedicated resources. I could, I could see that happening. Well, and it's like, uh, I think it's analogous to the way that we misuse the police in the sense that if we have a problem in our town and you don't know how to solve it, you send the police, right? Even though the police are not problem solvers. Really? They're not, it's not the problem-solving unit of the city? I've, yeah, I've thought about that. That's an interesting, that's an interesting note. Like, the police are really uh, useful uh, in certain ways, but they are not the, like, we, they're not the psychology team to go out and <laughs> figure out what somebody's, why somebody's yelling, right? And in, in business, it seems like the engineers are the people that they send to solve a oh, lot of problems, right? Yeah. Send the engineers, and the engineers are, you know, they're they're like the police. They're very good at at doing the thing that they do. But they are, you know, they're not the ones that you send in to do to to check to see if a normal person can figure out your project. If a normal person who has who has no inside knowledge is going to show up at the front door, look for the doorbell. Yeah. And you know, and the engineers like, well, there isn't a doorbell. Uh, Clearly, what you need to do at that point is to, you know, retina scan or whatever. And it's like the person's looking for the doorbell, can't find it. Right, right. And that, you know, and that disconnect where businesses don't, you know, like every business should hire a squad of normals, mm-hmm. right? There should be like team normal where those people are constantly kept totally in the dark about, your, about the product your business makes. Or, or, yeah, and how it gets made. And how it gets made. And then, but they are the like... They are the final, uh, the final test, and it's not like testers. They actually belong to they, they are uh, they're part of your business, and you just unleash your stuff on them. Right. It's on, on a little bit ombudsman's the wrong word, but it's somebody who's there specifically to find what's broken about what you're doing. Mm-hmm. I'm not not just a tester, but somebody in that case. And I, I'm actually that does sound more like a tester now that I hear those words. But it's somebody whose job it is to advocate for the the busy and confused person. Yeah, right. right. Like, if you're, I guess what you have to do is you have to imagine 
And this is the thing that, that happens so infrequently in the way that we design things. It's like, imagine the person, not just your imagined user, right? but like imagine a user who has no, who, who doesn't even know they want to use your product, who doesn't, who, you know, imagine the user who's showing up there with a, like a crying baby who's, who that's doesn't exactly e- what I was thinking. <laughs> you know? it's ex- I was just thinking of having to hold a crying baby and use the phone with one hand, right? which who is a totally self-absorbed position to take. But those were the times I felt most acutely. This was never designed to work in this situation. And this is when I really need it to work. Uh, right. Like, like, here's the thing. Here's one. Are you ready for this? Never have any device. This happens with Bluetooth speakers. It happens with lots of stuff. Never have any device in the world that makes a noise when you turn it off. Like a car should not make a noise when it's locked. That wakes a baby and it's just unnecessary. I have a Bluetooth speaker in my shower that makes a bloop when you shut it off. I was never aware of how many things make a noise when you turn them off until I had a kid I was trying to get to sleep. You now, that's that a, that's a use case. You think they're saying goodbye? <laughs> is that is that what the uh, the concept is? Like, well, when they turn it off, we should we should give them one last salutation. Right. I think it's probably part of a certain kind of customer service experience where like, you know, it used to be that it felt like a sign of status that your car made a bloop, you know, only douchebags and rich kids had those at at one time. And so once that became, now you were kind of like when you're, you know, for goes or whatever, like you feel like you're a big shot. (laughs) Yeah. See you later. Bye Merlin. Especially with speakers though, I think it's a confluence of two annoying things, which is on the one hand, like this, my Bluetooth speaker in, in the shower, it's just a speaker on a suction cup that's water resistant. Mm-hmm. waterproof nominally but um it's very very cheap it was like nine dollars and uh and like what you couldn't do with good interface you need to cover you need to do somehow so for example there's a light that blinks the entire time that's on which makes me a little bit crazy mm-hmm. and then it makes a bloop one bloop when you turn it on one bloop when you turn it off that's how it lets you know right yeah but i i, I have a i have a sort of side question yes speaker with a suction cup on it mm-hmm have you ever sitting in the bath suction cupped the speaker to yourself? No, you know what? That's a great question. If I were a little younger, I think that would probably be one of the first or second things I I, I did. Mm-hmm. I, I like suction cupping things to myself. That's you know, fun. and then like turn it up and see like how it feels. Well, right. It would be like yeah, you'd really like, it would be a haptic, right? You'd really feel the music. You'd feel it not haptic, but you'd feel the music in your head. Yeah, like you're 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 there in the shower. I could see and, being kind of high and trying that. Yeah, like suction cup the speaker to yourself, and then you're like, boots, boots, boots. <laughs> while you're like, waiting on hold. <laughs> <laughs> it'd be pretty. Uh, you know, I can I I I imagine that I would ultimately have to try that. Uh, yeah, you know, the other thing is, I, I like what you said though about the uh, the police being like. Uh, the engineers being like the police. Mm-hmm. I think there's there's a lot in common there, but I think there's another – two different poor impulses. With the police, maybe for me, I kind of feel like they become my surrogate dad. Where like if I felt like I've done everything I can to ask, cajole, threaten, and it still doesn't work out or I'm, I'm annoyed – you end up. I try not to do this anymore, but you end up calling the police to, yeah, to call, come in and yeah, take call, care of this thing. Like, well, you you said you were gonna, you gotta. <laughs> I'm gonna call the police. You're making a noise. Yeah. And with engineers, I have a feeling the impulse is more practical. Of like, well, these nerds are gonna have to be the ones who you know do this anyway. Let's just give it straight to them. <laughs> you know, and I mean yeah. nothing against you know engineering. It's like it's it's such a misunderstood and difficult job. But you know, it's it's like like they say, you know, don't uh, don't put the guy who cleans up cleans up after the elephants in charge of who's allowed to be in the parade because he's going to have a very specific <laughs> point of view. <laughs> I, I feel like I feel like there are there are products 
and there are things that we interact with that are that are purely for pleasure, right? That we, you know, like a guitar, for instance, you very seldom sit down, pick up a guitar, and go, oh, God, I hate this guitar. I just have to deal with it right now, <laughs> right? And there are lots of things in our world wow, yeah. that are in that category of just like, I, I just can't wait to get alone with this thing. But most of the products that we're being sold now and most of the, the, the way design works now, the presumption of everybody, a presumption of the people making the thing are like, okay, are you ready to sit down with your Epson Eps, XP400S <laughs> and really get into this experience of working with this, you know, and we're going to give you like a screen that has a sunset on it. It's going to say hi to you. Right. You're gonna, it's going to give you my microwave. Of- <laughs> my microwave, when it goes off, it scrolls in LEDs. Enjoy your meal. <laughs> right. And Which all I these- find so insulting. I don't want a, an appliance <laughs> greeting me. Enjoy your meal. Enjoy your no, meal. Merlin. Come back. I'm talking to you. <laughs> you know, and this this concept of like, I mean, 90% of the things that I interact with in the day, I my, my, my attitude about it is I don't really want to be here interacting with you. I just have to get through this process. Please, can you just make it as simple as absolutely, possible? Absolutely. And so you, you walk up to the ATM and they're like, hi, would you like to hang out with me? The ATM machine? Let's Let's chat about, you know, it's just like, up yours, up yours bank, up yours machine, up yours programmer, up yours everybody. Just give me the like basic and, and, that, and that the idea that the, the nicest thing that these people could do who are designing these things is design it so that, you, so that it is invisible and that it does not assert itself. Right, Because right, right. you are standing there not only with a crying baby but somewhere else to be. You don't, nobody goes to the ATM machine like, I can't. You know what? Later on today – after I'm done with my work. I don't really gonna, need the money, but I just really enjoy the experience. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to change into something comfortable and just go down and fucking chat with my just ATM. Pick a fucking language and just hang out, man. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call up some phone trees, pick a language. Maybe I'll pick, maybe I'll pick a, the language that isn't mine and just listen to what it says in a different language. And, and I see that so – I mean like every copier I've bought in the last however long, you know, which is a lot more copiers than I ever should have had to buy. You mean photocopiers? photocopiers printers multifunction printers that's right that are also scanners and also you know can do a thousand other things and every one of them is just is just like a a loss leader pyramid scheme to sell (laughs) overpriced cartridges right right that are a thing that we're just in like somebody was like what if we made ink out of bb's and each one of those bb's costs a dollar like that's a (laughs) <laughs> that is a business. That sounds like Apple's cloud, right? That sounds like a thing that we can just charge people. It's just, it's the ultimate, it's the ultimate remora, the ultimate <laughs> eel. That eel, yeah. And so I, you know, how many printers have I bought? And I think half the printers I bought are because the, their predecessor I threw out a window. And, every and they're, one they're of miserable. Them, I mean, like the one we've got it can can cool. work with uh, cloud-based printing, which is really uh, cool. It needs some help. But just even going in to enter the Wi-Fi password, and I have a pretty good Wi-Fi password. I bet you do. Going in and entering that using an up and down arrow to choose hmm. a letter, capital, 
No, lowercase, number, character. I mean, seriously. And then, of course, it does the whole like high security thing where it doesn't yeah. let you see what you've already typed in. Uh-uh. So it's one of those, it's one of those times where like, again, it's, it's the, the reality is butting up against the best practices. Everybody yeah. should be using a better password, but it doesn't take that many times of having to do that before you go, you know, I'm changing my Netflix password to pencil 69. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, wait a minute. What if somebody's looking over your shoulder while you put your password into your printer? They could be, all, happens they all could, the time. Huge they <laughs> Choice of identity theft. <laughs> They'd be printing shit all day while you're out at work. You come home, your whole house is full of like printed I out I didn't stuff. Scan this? Who scanned this? <laughs> <laughs> Friends, this episode of Roderick on the Line is sponsored by Slack, the messaging app for teams. I'm told that it sounds like I'm saying teens, but this is the messaging app for teams, although I have to imagine that teens are probably welcome as well. In any case, Slack consolidates all your work communications into one place, makes them instantly searchable and available on any device. Guys, this is a very compelling new thought technology. Slack easily integrates with all the tools and services you already use, all the great tools, stuff like Google Drive and Hangouts, Dropbox, GitHub, Stripe, you name it. So that means you have just this one beautiful place to go to keep up with everything that's happening on your team. What's great is that Slack also makes all your stuff searchable. So every discussion, every decision and document is archived, indexed, and available through a single search box. No more digging through piles of old Braille playboys trying to find the Henderson Report. It's all just right there. Slack is used by over 500,000 people, more than 60,000 teams every day. And that includes companies like the New York Times, perhaps you've heard of them, eBay, Adobe, and even the Ice Cube Neutrino Observatory, who use Slack all the way down at the South Pole. That's the pole where the penguins live. Here's the really cool part. Slack is free to use for as long as you want and with as many users as you want. It's super easy to get started using Slack today by visiting slack.com slash supertrain. Now, here's the crazy part. When you sign up for your free account from that page, you'll also get $100 in credit to use if you ever decide to upgrade to the many fantastic features of Slack's paid plans. Point is, you need to get on this by signing up at slack.com slash supertrain. Many thanks to Slack, the messaging app for teams, for taking some of the pain out of staying connected and for their wonderful support of Roderick on the line. <laughs> Screw you, world. Oh, uh, it's it's so true. You know, it's funny. I think about like the kind of jobs I, I in the past. I've referred to certain jobs I've had as uh, somewhat inaccurately, but I felt like an information janitor where nobody notices what I do until the toilets back up. You know, the kind of job I've always wanted to, on the one hand, never wanted to have the kind of job where people only notice what you do when it doesn't go flawlessly. That would be a terrible thing. And the other thing is I've never wanted to have one of those kinds of jobs where the success of the interaction is mostly based on how little they had to interact with you. Mm-hmm. So you think about uh, checking into a hotel late at night. You think about, um, you know, obviously rental car. Because, you know, the rental car is like the worst. Because at that point, you're like, oh, okay, I'm finally done with all these flights. I'm, I'm not even to the hotel yet. And now I got to get a rental car. And like every like picosecond that goes by that you're having to deal with that person and they're asking if you want the GPS and, and, and you're like, nah, I just, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. that's the problem is though, with a device, that's kind of what you really want. You want to be able to cover people's needs with an ATM. But, you know, you don't want it to, to turn into, I mean, again, we're going to, I guess what I'm saying is we are going to evaluate that interaction based on how little time it took. It's kind of how I feel about going out to eat. I just want somebody who's extremely efficient. I don't want to talk about my day. Hi, guys. How hey. y'all doing tonight? How how we doing? I'm Skip. You mind if I, oh, just settle in here to the booth with you? I want to say about some of our appies. The, uh, the great thing about the rental car 
business at airports is that you know they know that you're exhausted they know that you just want to get out of there and that's why they take that opportunity to upsell you 14 times it's all that's the thing is their margins on are so thin right yeah and, and it's going to be all about all that other crap and the collision and explaining you know and they're, yeah, they're just counting on you going like fine 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 whatever 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 like give it to me but what's amazing is that my interacting with my iPhone as much as I do, <laughs> how much the business model of the internet right now is based on that same kind of coercion. Like, oh, are you really excited to watch this, uh, this little YouTube video? Well, why don't we take 15 seconds and talk about your car insurance? <laughs> or uh, the, the, the best one is I, I figured out <clears throat> like my latest hack, which is akin to my hack of never upgrading my operating system. Mm -hmm. My latest hack is I went in and I turned off cellular data hmm. uh, in my iPhone on all my games. Oh, interesting. That is a life hack. I don't want my games interacting with the internet. And what I discovered is I turned off cellular data for my games, and that prohibits the games from downloading video advertisements, which often are the thing that jam my phone up the most. Absolutely. Right? But Apple has made sure that every time I turn on something that has cellular data disabled, it pops up a screen that says cellular data is disabled for this and it won't let me do anything else right. until I close that screen. And That's so I'd never thought of that because the ever the, the revenue is going to come from advertising. Right. So, I had never thought of that. So they are, you know, they're do they 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 allow it, but they make sure to punish you each time by saying like this thing that you know you've done where we want you to know that you've done it. Do you think that's Apple? I mean, I, I think the Apple functionality of telling you you can't do something because you've shut that off is a good idea. Reminding you that you're in airplane mode or something. I mean, for that, I, th I would look more to the, the developers who are putting ads in there as the way to sustain that. I'm not sure because, you know, like sometimes I will make the mistake. I'll, I'll, I'll turn off location services uh, in something because I don't want my photos tagged. Oh, yeah, sure. With location. But then, and I'm not even sure if that works. That may just be uh, a total like pablum, but I, I do what I can to not have my photos tagged, particularly, mm -hmm. you know, when I'm lying in bed at night, uh, sending uh, naked texts out to uh, <laughs> friends in Europe. When you break into the White House. <laughs> you know, I don't want like that tagged exactly. But, uh, but then I'll go click on the map program. Now, why would I be doing that? Right? If I didn't want right. to know, if I didn't want the map to like, serve me here by knowing where I am and you know and the idea that at that point the thing pops up and says you need to you you can't turn that on from here you need to now go back to your settings and and enable location services and then come back here right and you're standing on a street corner and it's pouring down rain and you're right, trying exactly. to just exactly that's where, exactly the scenario we were talking about and it's just like uh the that somebody hasn't thought that through, that if you click on map, like let's just assume that location services in it is enabled. Like uh, uh, the 0.01% the, the, the of the time that I go on into maps and just want to see like, where's the 17th Adorissement in Paris? Mm -hmm. You know, I would like to see that on in my map program rather than Googling it. 
it's it's negligible compared to the number of times when I'm in a hurry and I'm like, oh, where is that place? You know, I'm within two oh, blocks. Oh, you're using there. it really as a traditional atlas in that instance. Like I'm using it as a... to look where a thing is without regard to where you are right now. I do that sometimes. Like sure. the, the Faroe Islands. I wonder how many natural water sources there are in the Faroe Islands. I wonder if I can see that hmm. from my map program. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of... I mean, I don't, I don't flip through atlases anymore like I once did my whole life. And so all I have is this little black box that comes to bed with me every night, and I just get to flip through it. It may require and, updating, but there is um, in iOS 8, just for what it's worth, because John mm-hmm. Syracuse will yell at me if I don't say uh, something here. Okay, there there right. is actually a way to go un- into privacy and then location services. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of it's cool. Um, you always have the ability to turn the location to never. And then depending on the app, usually your other choice is use location while I'm using it or use it all the time. So that's kind of cool. But that oh. just so you know, there is granularity to shutting it off. If you want just never, I mean, I have most of mine set to never because I'm, I'm like, you know, why does this drawing program that my kid uses want, the, want to know my location? And when you see so, how many you can do this with, it's kind of cre- creepy. Always never. Those are my options. Well, also while using. So if you go to, in this case, I go to Chrome, the browser, and it says allow location access never or just while using the app. So that that's an upgrade because right now uh, when I go to privacy, I just have always know. Oh, while using the app, hello. Some of them have that, some of them don't. Yeah. So that that should help a little bit. Thank you, John Syracuse, for your constant <laughs> yelling at Merlin on a side <laughs> channel. In Are you satisfied inst- with your care? <laughs> in this in this instance, you have forced Merlin to do a thing. Then and has you have, Merlin has showed Dinosaur John. No, but listen, I wanna I wanna also commiserate because. You know, uh, I don't think it's transparently obvious to people what kinds of things you should flip on for where. And it does have an impact on your battery life mm-hmm. and on your, to some extent, your privacy, right? Well, I mean, like, like, look at any, any service you sign up for on the web. The first thing I do when I sign up for anything is go straight to the settings and straight to profile, where I am increasingly not even surprised anymore when it's saying make everything public. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you just got to go in there and go like, well, is this, you know, you, I, I don't really want my want all my information. I don't want to be accessible. I don't want the email. You know what I'm saying? It really is buyer beware at this point where you've got to go in and make sure that your ducks are in a row with those things. Yeah. Yeah. It is buyer beware. Well, and the thing is, you know, talk about battery life. Yeah. My, it's my psychic battery, battery life mm. that is always, always, on, <laughs> it's, single always digits. On, it's always on 3%. <laughs> and I'm afraid that, that, that it's going to shut off. It's, I'm afraid that my battery life is going to shut me down at 15%, mm. which, which it used to do before I got the upgrade. Yeah. And I don't want to, you know, I'm actually l- lately I've had a surprising amount of energy and it's because I'm, <clears throat> I'm undergoing a forced program of energy. Oh, I can't wait to hear about this. Well, you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, Oh, well, cause you, you have to show up. Yeah, when you have stuff to do, you just have you have you 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 find reservoirs of energy that that prior would have seemed inaccessible. Yeah, yeah. Um, and 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 it, it's always that feeling, you know, that feeling when you're like cresting a, a a mountain range, you're above the tree line, and you know over that ridge there's a little lake, mm-hmm. and you just got to get there, but you're really tired. And you have to find that energy to you know to push up over and then. It's downhill to the little lake. It helps to know there's something there, though. 
Yeah, right. When you're trying to use every part of the time buffalo, it helps a lot to know that, that, oh, I just, I don't need to get through the rest of my life. I need to get through this morning. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. And and so often the problem of living a life like mine uh, was formerly that it was always a false horizon, you know, Mm. or always a false summit. Like you're coming up the trail and you're like, I can see light through the trees. I'm at the summit. And you get and you get to the you you crest that ridge and you're like, oh, it's just a ridge. I'm not at the summit. Like then you you watch the mountain go up. Another- <laughs> why, did, why did Apple tell me to go here? <laughs> <laughs> on top of a windmill. <laughs> this isn't my. Oh, I'm not having a meeting here. I'm the on Chamber a ridge. of Commerce is tapping their feet. <laughs> <laughs> So that's, that's uh, impressive to hear. That was one of the things I was most kind of quietly concerned about was like, what a huge adjustment. And I mean, it's, it sounds like I'm calling you lazy, which is not what I mean to be saying, but just that knowing that you are a night owl, let's put it that way. You, you tend, you, in my experience, given the options, you tend to prefer to do a lot of your stuff at night. Yeah. It's a lifestyle. Well, and it's interesting how it's just like when you, you, change a job and you're doing something else and then that becomes the new thing that you're doing. And it was always hard for me to get up in the morning, but now I have things to do. So I'm getting up in the morning and and then you settle into a thing where it's like, oh, it's no harder for me to get up in the morning than it is anybody else. Right. It's just the, the problem isn't getting up in the morning. The problem is it's always hard to get up when the only thing motivating you to do your work is you. Oh, I know. That's that, that's talk about going up the ridge. You get there and you're like, "Hey, this is there's nothing here. This yeah. is not what I what, what I I didn't do these 10,000 other things in order to be here and like uh, you know, the the writing's not there, the 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 painting's not there, whatever it is, right? Yeah. Yeah, I I totally agree. The, the, the thing I feel like I um am going through like my wife is uh, working more. She's changed jobs and uh, is working a lot more, which is great. And I'm very happy to and really enjoy my time with the kids. So it, it is more like, especially in the afternoons. You know what it is? It's like, I, maybe like you, I got used to having a certain number of constraints. Yeah. But, you know, there would be a few constraints in the day. I think for me where it gets challenging, especially as somebody who loves to sleep, is to have the constraint of there's stuff that needs to happen up to a certain point at night. And especially if you want to have a social life or whatever, but you know, even just like getting the the bath has to happen every night, whether we feel like it or not. Like you know, we can only tolerate the kitchen being dirty for so long. You got, you know what I mean. You want to, mm-hmm. you don't want to be an animal. So on the one hand, there's the stuff that has to happen at night, and then there's the stuff that really needs to happen at a certain point in the morning. It's extremely rare that my kid wakes up later than six. So that problem is, though, then like, you, you know what I'm saying? You feel that in between and then you get like a, I'm not complaining. <laughs> I'm really actually not. I, uh, I just invented a new phrase I call the grumble brag, mm-hmm. which is when you, um, when you claim that you're not complaining about something uh, while you're totally complaining about it. <laughs> but anyway, when you get enough of those little way stations, it's why it's so hard to have multiple jobs, right? Yeah, it, it becomes so much overhead and so much like stress about all the little checkpoints you have to get to in this little rally. Do you let me ask you a question? Because I was thinking about your book the other day, just as I was driving down the street, I was like Merlin's book. Yeah, Merlin's book was a thing that I thought about a lot while you were making it, and then you know thought about it a lot while you were <laughs> not making it, <laughs> deciding not to make it. <laughs> and uh, like, do you ever fall prey to thinking about that? what is probably quite a pile of writing that you did right? and think like, that's something I'm going to repurpose for something or that's something I'm eventually going to do something else with or have you just 
Have you just buried it? Um, to be honest, it is in many ways incredibly painful in a number of ways. It's still, still, it's it's difficult to talk about because on the one hand, it's painful that this was something I was very, not just passionate about, but felt really uniquely capable of doing. I had a lot of thoughts. I had no, there was no dearth of thoughts in my head about what to, what to do. Um, and I, I had a lot to say. Um, I produced a lot of words. I didn't love that many of the words. And I'm actually going, I know I've said a lot of this before, but I'm going somewhere with this. The, the part that makes it like super painful though, it was where you get, get into the sunk cost fallacy stuff where mm. I start thinking about what that did to my family for so long. Like for so long, my wife was just, unbelievably supportive and said yes to anything I asked for until I started to really like, I don't want to say abuse it, but like there were times where I was like, how long does it take me to learn? I'm not going to write anything good and or substantial after seven o'clock at night. And yet mm-hmm. I would happily, because I'm so stressed out about that, I would happily leave her with an, all of the household duties while I go out and sit there and feel terrible about myself. Mm-hmm. That's all. That's, that was all very difficult. I still feel hmm, failure is too strong of a word, but I certainly don't feel like a success in how that whole thing went. The other big part of this, which you didn't ask about this, but the other big part of this is just how much the landscape has changed, which we've talked about this. I mean, uh-huh. it's true for musicians, but it's really true for all kinds of what we'll generally call content creators. The, even in the last year, that's changed, let alone the last five years. So, I mean, on the one hand, I had a lot of stuff, you know, probably close to 100,000 words of uh, words. I started out with 40,000 just off the website that needed to be edited. A lot of words, but I never really got it to be the thing I wanted. And it's not even the thing as I was always feeling this pressure to make it a kind of about email, even though it didn't have to be about email more and more that felt like such a millstone to me. Mm -hmm. So it's not like I have that much I want to do with that. The ideas in there are still very powerful and very lively to me. It's just now that comes out in podcasts. The thing, the thing though, ultimately makes it something I'm not trying to repurpose or re-explore I don't know. Um, I would not rule out writing a book at some point, but I, I, writing anything right now is a really tough racket. Mm-hmm. It's a very tough racket, and I think that the, the industry has changed, business has changed, and I think the audience has changed. So honestly, the kinds of things that people will pay not that much money for are things I don't necessarily <laughs> want to write. I don't want to write listicles. I don't, I don't want to produce dozens of Kindle books, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not what it's really, it, this was true in 2009, but it's really true now that it, it, and something Hodgman said when he was saying that this is a good idea to do. And he was right. Is that, you know, this is how you get invited onto fresh air. Like this is how, this is your jumping off point to a bigger thing, right? Is like, once you're an author, it changes everything. Yeah. But it wasn't yep. even that that I was looking for. It was just being able to feel like the time and energy and stress that I had invested in that, I wanted that to turn into something really great and timeless. Maybe that was too much pressure to put on myself, but it just became too much. And now today, like, you know, the whole Inbox Zero thing is like, ugh, it just the whole concept is so annoying and the willful misunderstanding of what I was trying to say, struggling to say, yeah. makes it a little bit dead in the water to me. But honestly, the, the thing as I stand here today, yes, I still feel terrible about how that went for everybody involved. But it is also a thing of like, I, you know, all the things being equal. If you're a reality TV star, having somebody ghostwrite a book for you is not a bad idea. As somebody who wants to sweat every single word of something that will probably take nine months to a year to do, like that's that's tough work for what you can expect in return today. Yeah, yeah. Did I answer that fairly? Yeah, you did. I mean, I, I think about it a lot. Uh, in a different way now because i because i'm i've been reflecting on the last period of my life which is kind of you know it's the wisdom of retrospect you look back and say 
oh, actually the last period of my life, which seemed to go by in a blink, actually was two distinct periods and it was filled with these two sort of different hmm. – um, as you as you, uh, as you apportion your life into eras yeah. uh, by looking back and saying like oh, – which, which in my experience takes several years to realize what era that really was. Yeah, right. And, and some of that is happening now and, um, you know <clears> – <throat> A lot of the projects that I have pursued over the course of my whole adult life, but in particular the last handful of years, you know, they didn't come all the way to fruition. I, and uh, there was a period of sitting and being very excited about, the, about a television show I was thinking of making where I drove across America and went to, uh, went to little depressed cities and tried to identify their arc from the time that they were founded through the oh, time that, that they were so prosperous. Cool. I right? could totally see you doing that. Did I ever describe this to you? I, it, I don't it, remember you describing this, but that actually is like, that sounds like, forgive my saying, that sounds like the work you were made for. It really, you it, would be it, really good at that. I was super excited about it, you know, you, and, and, and you'd come into Poughkeepsie and you'd say like, here's, here's what this land looked like when there was an Indian settlement here. And here's why the, Here's why the settlers chose it because it was a great place to build a mill mm -hmm. and here's what they milled. And then there was a period of great prosperity when they figured out how to, how to, you know, what this, this was the place where they invented the tie tack and <laughs> the tie tack blew up and everybody in the world needed one. And this was tie tack central and the that's why, boom, <laughs> you know, that's why there are all these beautiful, uh, bow arts mansions up on this one particular hill that they call founders hill and, and then World War I came and, you know, and I could be telling this story in both, uh, both um, video but also animation and, and uh, historical photographs and, you know, just kind of do this sweeping panorama of mm -hmm. a place and then say then, you know, U.S. manufacturing declined. A little bit like Cosmos but hyper-local. Right, right. And I mean, there, and that sounds really silly, but he's so great. And uh, Sagan and uh, Tyson, Neil deGrasse Tyson, is that uh -huh, right? Uh -huh. he, they're both so great at taking these complex ideas and making it something that you not only kind of kind of understand, but you find incredibly interesting by being very specific but limited. Like you're right. not going to cover everything. Like in the, your case, you're not like you're reading the encyclopedia for Poughkeepsie. It's right. more like saying what you taught me that I'm so grateful for is like you can just look at the complexion of this land, look at where this water is, look at where that hill is look at how until they had uh trolleys and funiculars you couldn't live up on that part of the hill that you know yeah. you're i think you're awfully good at that and and it's exciting because once you once you open your mind to that way of seeing you can look at your own town that way it does you know you wouldn't need a tv show to do it you can like like you say there's a reason that somebody planted their their flag here and it's usually because that was where the water was and that mm -hmm. was where the that's that was a defensible position uh, and the city grew this way and that way, and you can tell where it is. Like that whole that whole mission I was on uh, when I was on tour with Harvey Danger, where every town every town on the East Coast and in the Southeast, in particular, we'd pull in, the bus would stop, open up the door, and the tour manager would say, "Well, you guys got four hours to kill until sound check," and I would walk off the bus and say, "I'm going to find the Civil War graveyard. <laughs> I'm going to find the Civil War graveyard that is in every one of these towns." And invariably, where it was would have been the outskirts of town in 1870. Without having to look it up on a city-by-city -city basis, you, could, you had a pretty good reckoning? 
Yeah, you just know like, okay, I know I know that it's not on the outskirts of town now, right? Because there's no there's no town back east that has grown none. Um, but it's but in a lot of cases it's kind of in the decaying inner ring and then you find the civil war graveyard and you know that you kind of can see then that everything built outside of it was built after 1870 and everything inside of it at least that was the, those were the city limits and so it's like a little a little clue you can mostly count on right and 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 it's different in every place and you know and the 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 yankee graveyards are very different than the southern ones and and it was just a kind of little game to play to pass the time that that got me out and walking but i learned a lot by just kind of seeking this this little depression in the ground anyway so that was a that was a television show that i that i really wanted to to make and got excited about it. and then I was like well of course we're going to have to buy a GMC RV to drive around the country and and I started talking to people and people in television and they were like well what's the hook and I was like well the hook is uh, that it's really a cool idea because we the, would- the hook is usually I think in a case like that the hook is usually you're already really famous in some other way right like from tv or elsewhere you know what i mean like anthony yeah. Bord- bourdain is that his name yep. he has a show like that that's like better than it should be because he's a he's a very interesting guy would he have gotten that show if you weren't already like a celebrity chef probably not and that's the thing people kept saying to me like well if you had written a book about the american town and i'm like right i mean this would kind of be the book i would write about the american town this video show mm-hmm and then people would, were like, well, I mean, if you were like a, if you were Anthony Kiedis, and I'm like, oh, well, yeah, I mean, if I was Anthony Kiedis, uh, I'd be, I'd be in a hot tub in Vegas, right? I mean, I wouldn't be doing this. And I bet he's a nice guy, but his whole public image is so insufferable to me. I love <laughs> that. But I got no shirt now. But then they were like, "Well, what if you know? What if uh, what if you got to that town and then you found the cool artisanal uh, like mustard f- factory that the that the, the the mustache kids had built in the old abandoned hotel?" And I was like, "Yeah, I'd be into that." That starts to sound like a different show, though. Mm-hmm. Different I mean, channel too. You know, now now it's like if so then. I, I started following that stream, and I'm like, "What if I went to all the depressed towns in America and found the the artisanal must, uh, mustard factory that the mustache kids had built?" I was like, "That's an interesting show. It's not quite uh, mm, no. uh, right in my wheelhouse. It's it's uh, I would I'm I'm happy to interact with those people, and that would that would be a fun exploratory like." But a lot of those towns don't have an artisanal must, mustard factory. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of those towns just have artisanal crank getting manufactured. And, <laughs> you know, like the town hasn't found its, its footing yet. And so the, the, the idea kept evolving. And eventually it just... Are these, this is somebody... You actually talked to somebody about this? I talked to a lot of people about it. And, huh. the, and, the, and, the, and eventually it was like the consensus was the classic thing that... that, uh, that my good friend Christine Connor said to me one time, which is that people come all the time and say, I don't watch TV, but I've got a great idea for a television show. <laughs> right. And she said, the problem is that pe- the people who do watch TV do not want people who don't watch TV to make television for them. And 
Well, that's, she's, there's a reason she's in the corner office. That's right. really, she's so smart. Wow. Right. Yeah. And, and so, so the program that I wanted to make was exactly the type of thing that would get me to watch TV, but that's not what, you know, that, that isn't ha- uh, the type of program that the executives approve. Right. And there was no component of my show where, uh, where there was no sex tape component. Mm-hmm. No, no one got into a hair pulling fight with anybody else. There wasn't, you know, I never said bam. Right. Um, and I didn't, you know, and I never added uh, like bacon seasoning, bacon and, and seasoned cream cheese to it. <laughs> it wouldn't be expressly to make people cry. Which has a certain appeal. It's right. not celebrity based, strictly speaking. It's not. It's not emotionally based. It's not about making you feel better or more competent. Like there's so many nonfiction TV shows that are about making you feel like you're a chef, even though you're mostly someone who watches TV. Mm-hmm. And I think what it what, what it is is that PBS used to fund that kind of thing and doesn't as years much. Years ago, yeah. And there and all the things that came into the television sphere that seemed like little PBSs, like. Like the Discovery Channel and the National Geographic Channel and all these things, you know, the Smithsonian Channel, where you're like, oh my God, it's a world of public television. <laughs> and then every one of those channels devolved away from, um, like, National Geographic is just about cute tiger babies now. This, this, right? But that should all be so telling. To think about Bravo, A&E, Discovery, I'm not super familiar with National Geographic. That was kind of after my time. But you take any of those things, they all started out with the aspiration of being, uh, I think, I don't want to say just that, but I mean with the aspiration of having sort of a high-minded calling. Like A&E had some really nerd, they would show opera on oh, A&E. Oh, yeah, Barishnikov, right? Exactly. On, it's the arts and entertainment channel. And d- ditto, ditto for Bravo. Uh, and, you know, there was a time before the advent of, you know, Shark Week when you could really see... I don't know. And I'm not, again, I'm not grumbling. What I'm saying is, like, once again, let's just say it, the market has changed. Yeah. They found something that was more palatable and profitable. That guy, that announcer for Bravo, that's just like, on Bravo, the top 10 greatest thongs. <laughs> it's like, I remember watching this channel where it was like Masterpiece Theater. Uh huh. And it, now it's just like, on Bravo, we're going to go into your closet and find all the dirtiest shit that we can find. <laughs> Like, what happened? Hoarders who like to cook, shirtless on motorcycles. <laughs> so, so, but, but the the time I spent thinking about that television show and plotting it out and mm-hmm. imagining it and imagineering it. Let's be honest. And Imagineer then, and engination, <laughs> and then really trying to think who the market was, who I could, who would, how much it would cost to produce those episodes. Mm-hmm. And whether or not I could self-fund those or internet fund them, what, what if those episodes were only 15 minutes long? What if they were 10 minutes long? What if I sold them to museums, right? What if that was a thing that you, when you walked into the Poughkeepsie History Museum that this video played and that, right. was, and that was a thing that I could make a case to the National Museum Association that I would go around the country and do these, these cool – videos about these different places um like you know i was churning all these different ideas and in the end none of that stuff got made and in a sense like not not yet it hasn't right but but i can't think of that as like a failure or a lo- or lost time because i really worked on it and it didn't come to 
fruition. But, but I do think about the last five years of my life as this period where I was, I was doing that a lot. I was like, what am I going to, it's part of your you – because know, always when you work on your own or you do creative stuff, an element of your job is always figuring out what to do next. It's true in knowledge work in general. But I think mm-hmm. when you're a creative person – and I'm not going to say a creative because everyone should stop saying that. But when you're a creative person and you make stuff and your output is how you are evaluated, uh, a huge part of what you do is thinking about what to do next and how. But you don't really get points for that, understandably, no. right? You, you don't you don't get credit for all the opera you didn't write. And, and if I had wh- – when I first – came up with this idea if i had quickly written a breezy book about the life and death of american cities and had like gotten that in the book pipeline and had gone around and done fresh air uh and and morning talk show circuit about like you've got to if if the book ha- had support right um you got to read this book. It's all about the life and death of the American city. That's where we're at right now. And, and you know, these artisanal mustard factories aren't going to make themselves, uh, you know, and then went because that's what David Reese effectively did. He made that book about pencil sharpening. That was very much his own personal private world, his own personal private joke on himself and, and world that he was exploring. And then, converted that into a television show and then he was in a new world of of struggle and strife he found a way i i'm so interested in this actually um he found a way though to uh as i like to say take it and turn it he figured out a way to make it non-obvious so mm-hmm. on the one hand you go okay well uh lots of people people buy lots of books about sharpening pencils well not not accurate <laughs> like so he found a way to essentially I, I mean i've never i've never read the whole book but from watching the tv show my sense is what you're really getting to is that he has he has a very interesting approach to to thinking about life and experience and expertise hmm. that applies to stuff that you might be taking for granted. So it's, it's not a show about sharpening pencils and it's, 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 it's kind of secretly a show about curiosity and science, you know, right. science, science on some level, but it's not, it isn't like educational. It doesn't feel like you're taking your medicine you and you, and what makes it so intriguing is how, how involved he is and how interested he is, at least on screen, in, uh, in, in exploring something that you think you really understand. And it doesn't come off, turns out. It doesn't feel like, like I said, it doesn't feel like medicine. And that's, that's his success there is he did find a way to, I guess, with help from people like Christine, like figured a way to turn that. Yeah. And the, the, the amazing thing about David, and this is the great thing about Adam Savage, and it's a thing that, that, uh, that in a way I have in common with them is that, both of those guys are still totally into and amazed by the things that the the uh, the, the things that they discover in a, in a, in a very childlike way. Yeah, good examples. I, I mean, I go out. Uh, I I spend a lot of time traveling with David, and he is as cynical as the next guy about the world. Right, but if you lift up a rock and there's a frog under it, David is literally jumping for joy. <laughs> And cannot believe that there that he found a frog. And we were in Ethiopia together, and we found this swimming hole out in the in a, like a nature preserve. And the local kids were climbing up this improbably tall tree and jumping into the swimming hole. And David could not get his clothes off fast enough. <laughs> and I was standing there, like, and 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 Jonathan Colton too, and saying like, um, 
uh, David? And he's already like, woohoo! And he climbs up this tree and he gets up in it and he realizes how high it is. And he's like, uh-oh. But he's standing there in his underwear and there are uh, you know, 25 kids cheering him on. And he's got to make the jump. And I'm on the shore like, look, look, man, here's the, you know, there's one spot in this hole that I, I mean, these kids uh, all weigh 90 pounds and they can jump off that tree. But there's one spot in this swimming hole that a 210 pound American guy is going to land and not impale himself. And it's right here. Do not go any aim here. And he jumps and he makes the landing. And he pops up, and it's just like, it's the most beautiful thing you ever saw. Uh, I, I would never in a million years do that for like 50 reasons. Well, and the reason that you wouldn't do it is that two days later, the giardia that went up his nose and up his butt when he jumped in that pool caused him to be projectile vomiting and pooping everywhere. Oh, no. While we were, you know, like uh, staying in a... And the, the locals were, were um, acclimated to it. Oh, well, you know, or, or they always have a low-level case of giardia. <laughs> But but um but David was not acclimated to it, and we were then on a we were then on a navy base and trying to find some some cure because David couldn't couldn't walk fifteen feet without needing to run to the oh man uh, and but that is the kind of you know that's the kind of actual like excitement about life and Adam Savage is the same thing Absolutely, same way yeah. it's just like uh you just built a scale model of the of the hedge maze from The Shining why. Like, right. why, why, what, why? And it's just like, what do you mean, why? Have well, you, you know, seen it? You end up apply, you apply people <laughs> who make an iPhone app that says yo to people. But then you look at him and like, what's that nerd doing with the bushes? Like, yeah. what is that? Like, what good is this? He's like, what good is it? it look at it. It's, it, it. it sells itself. And it's like, wow. I mean, you know, like Lee Unkrich is on board 100%. But the, like a normal person would have no would have no idea that that was made just and that everything he makes including his TV show is made just out of the spirit of like total love and total childlike excitement and i have that same quality about the things that i love and i think i think a lot of people have that quality about the things that they love and that you know and it's hard to sell it's hard to sell that excitement about like Poughkeepsie have you ever looked at it in an atlas? It's a, do you know where the fresh water is? You're never going to make it to the first commercial break. <laughs> no. Except, except that these other nerds have managed, you know, like and Adam Savage had the advantage of like, we're going to blow shit up on an old air, airport. Yeah. And whatever David's advantage was, it was he just invented it out of whole cloth, right? I mean, yeah. the, and, and part of that advantage was the pure improbability of a guy writing a book about pencils. Um, and, but so I'm still, you know, I'm still churning that. And you know, obviously I've been trying to write my book about my walk across Europe for, for 15 years now. And the last in iteration of it, I sent it off to a guy in New York city and it's a hundred plus thousand words too. Mm. And he, uh, you know, he was a fan of our program. He was a, he was a big, um, a big editor, uh, at a, at a reputable, legendary publishing house and he was like i'm totally into this i really think it's great but these hundred thousand words are really more like notes for a book oh no oh the last thing you want to hear (laughs) i was like notes for a book i was hoping you were going to say they just need a little bit of 
You know, you just need to just round off the edges. Covering a UPC code. Yeah, I was I was getting ready to book the the author photo. Oh no! And that you know, and that was just like right notes for a book. And the and the world has changed so much in that fifteen years that right. so much of that writing, um, is about is about how those places were in nineteen ninety nine, and they're not like that anymore. And you'd have to really to, to to for it to be authentic in some ways. You'd have to really rethink the entire approach. Cause, yeah, because you've changed so much since then. Right, and and the, I think the only way to do it now is that some at some point ten years from now mm-hmm. I go retrace my steps, and then they then that whole book that I wrote were they they were notes for a book. Like here's a walk that I did when I was thirty, and I never finished the book. So when I was sixty, I went and did it again. Um, this time on a bike. That sounds like a documentary. And on the bike, and the bike is actually motorized. It's called a motorcycle. Mm-hmm. And the motorcycle actually is a car. Uh, and it's actually a plane. And I flew over the I flew over the place that I walked, and I wrote my reflections on that it's over a long weekend. <laughs> <laughs> you you but, got me. You, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go. I, oh, I you was, got me really thinking about something now, and this this, ah, this sounds kind of karma sucky, and I don't mean it to be. The way that you were describing. Um, you know, talking about like trying to get your your concept for a TV show on one of those places, and them saying that you know people don't want to watch TV from people who don't watch TV. Yeah, there's something in that that is really painful and interesting to me because it, it it leads to this larger point, which is you know how little we each ultimately understand about the industries we're not in. Right. So, you know, you think you've read lots of books. So you think of yourself as somebody who's who could be an author, like a published author, not just a writer, but a published somebody who sells their words for a living and periodically and again and again and again. Or, or you think of yourself as somebody who's like, oh, my God, I've watched and read so much science fiction. Uh, I could I could easily make a science fiction TV show and get it on Netflix. Everybody's doing it nowadays. But then once you actually meet people inside the industry, it ends up you realize I feel like you realize how a, how little you really understand about that industry. Like, we all have these guesses, and we've read things, we've read books, but in that case, we're like, you go like, well, yeah, but like for John John's show, Hills and Rivers, where he goes around and tours the great cities of America and discusses their complexion. Like, okay, who do we think that is for? And like, who would watch that? But also like, who would advertise on that show? Right. Because with a problem like, with a show like that, I could see that being a huge disconnect. That, you know, you want young people to watch it, but it's probably like Ford that would want to buy an ad on there or Buick or whatever. I don't know if they make Buicks, but I don't know. I just think that's, I think that's part of it is like, it makes the, can feel, um, depressing is too strong a word, but can feel like it keeps you down because you start to feel like such a dumbass yeah. that you fundamentally don't understand this industry. And then and finally to that point, like, why do you imagine that there are, there are probably tens of thousands of people or hundreds of thousands of people working in all these industries? Why don't they have TV shows? They already understand how to make TV. Do you like, <laughs> do you think you're actually that much better at making a movie than somebody who's been like an assistant director? Yeah. And yeah. that, but but they're yeoman. They they do their job. It's just that we look at that and go, oh, I can make the Avengers better or whatever. And it's like, well, you sure? There's well, there's a lot of people working in that industry, right? Well, <laughs> they and, seem and pretty staffed up. <laughs> some a, a big part of it, it is the it's the classic thing, and I'm and I'm seeing it now uh, in, in my foray into politics, which is that I'm I am encountering the entrenched class, and they are saying, what make exactly that? What makes you think that you can do this better? Than those of us who are who have only been doing this and have been doing this for a long time, 
And they're absolutely right in the sense that, in this same exact sense that you just described. And the only hope, uh, the only hope is that routinely there are people from outside all of these spheres who come in with a with a good idea and are able to master the vernacular, put together the the right team of smart people to help mm-hmm. and actually do make something new from outside. And it, it happens infrequently enough, but it is the, but when it does happen, it's, ex, it's so exciting to us that we, you know, that we misapply the lesson and think, wow, you know, that hmm. uh, again, like I could, I could make the Avengers better by yeah, sitting well, why, here. Why you know, can't I be Elon Musk? Right. Why can't I be Elon Musk? Kind of, isn't that kind of what we're talking about? It is. And, 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 and partly, you know, partly it is this, it's the question of how, what role does expertise and experience play in various jobs? Mm-hmm. And in, you know, like pediatric brain surgery. It's a factor. <laughs> right? Expertise <laughs> is the whole game. There is, I mean, the best pediatric brain surgeon and the worst pediatric brain surgeon, between those two people, there is inspiration probably is the factor, right? This person has the, – the best pediatric brain surgeon probably has incredible dexterity and has a natural physical gift mm-hmm. and maybe also has inspiration. But the worst pediatric brain surgeon who isn't – in really incompetent right who isn't in jail or, or 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 committing malpractice but the you know the worst one who is still competent is still an incredible expert mm-hmm. in their field right and in things like hmm. filmmaking and comedy writing and television producing i think it's much more it's much more likely that the people who have the expertise do have a knowledge base that's that's useful, but they also are kind of gatekeepers in a way that, that, that it probably has a, a tendency to keep good ideas out mm-hmm. more. I mean, and, and a lot of the people that, that, just, that green light TV shows are producers who are, um, who are timid and don't want to make a mistake. And so they keep making the same show over and over. And but they care about the TV, even if they don't love every program, they care about the process. They well, or that, or they're in the process, and you know, it's it, it's you see it the same way in politics that people get a long way in politics by being timid. Like hmm. don't don't if you don't step too far to the left or too far to the right, keep your nose clean. You make the right friends. You, you know, <laughs> keep your head down, right? They do care. <laughs> what about, strange advice to give to a public official, <laughs> but they try do, not to get noticed. <laughs> they, they ultimately do care about the, you know, the, the something got them engaged initially, and then they are in the process, which feels kind of like the military or a corporation. You just, you do what is done and you don't rock the boat and you get where you're going. And I think a lot of people end up producers in television, um, and they're not they don't all love it or even understand it a lot of them are there because their brother was the you know the brother gave him a job and 
so so there are these there there are these forms that are different from pediatric pediatric brain surgery but people who occupy those jobs would like you to think that it was equivalent to pediatric brain oh, surgery. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Right? Yep, and it's like, yep. oh, you don't have the expertise to do this. And it's like, well, it's right. not it expertise isn't the entire game in a lot of these rackets. I like what you're saying about expertise and experience, and this is probably nested right in the middle of what you're saying. But I would say for that to form a three-legged stool, you got experience, expertise, and the third really obvious one is motivation. Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of the reason that, and I don't, you notice I'm not saying inspiration. I'm mm-hmm. saying motivation. Like not only like what makes you want to do this, what it's you could even call it taste in some ways. Like what is it that makes you want to be good at this, and then how do you evaluate how well it's going and what what you need to do differently? Does that happen like 100 percent intuitively because you so. Like in the case of, like you said, in show business, maybe you were raised in a family where that's just in your bones. Yeah. You know, if you're like Sofia Coppola, like she's been around that so much that, you know, just spending a little, I, I, this sounds really dismissive and I don't mean it to, but like, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's certainly not as, as patently difficult if you're a kid in Oklahoma who's only ever, the biggest exposure they've had to the film industry is going to the cinema. Right. But that motivation, the thing is, that's the part a lot of people get wrong. Even with the experience and even, it's hard to get the experience that brings you the expertise if you don't have the right motivation. They right. all end up propping each other up. And if you're in politics and you have the wrong motivation, like what a recipe for disaster. Well, yeah, and the, but but I think what I think uh, what also often happens is that people with the right motivation encounter a system, a pre-existing system that they aren't able to navigate successfully. And I think there are, every year you see people run for office that seem like. Um, <clears throat> You know, they're painted as kind of crackpots, but they're really inspired to make a difference. And they just, then they're painted as crackpots because they aren't able to navigate the, they, to, the to, to navigate the game. And I mean, we, we see it in corporate life all the time. The people, I was talking to a, a good friend the other day and she was talking about her job. She was like, well, the CEO doesn't, he's not really a, uh, a visionary. And I said, how many, how many people work at your company? And she said, mm, 25. And I said, and you guys have a CEO. <clears throat> like when I was coming up in the world, a company that had 25 employees maybe had a president and that president was also the founder. But the world we're living in now, your company of 25 people as a, as a board of directors, a CEO, <laughs> a CFO, a CTO, and then however many vice presidents, and then however many managers, does your, directors. Does your business have any employees? Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the fact that, the, that her company has a C, CEO who is 45 years old and is, you know, like a guy running his own company, running a company for the first time, you know, is like the, the expertise that he has on offer or like the talents that he is really applying. Um, a, a lot of those talents are just like uh, primarily in, in having the chutzpah to call himself a CEO. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, that is like the, that's a, that's a, a 
an emblem of the age. You could. It's one of the few kinds of jobs, though, where you. Oh, this is really bad. No, no. Um, where you can be, you can get really far, potentially really fast, and still be completely self deluded. <laughs> you could be virtually psychotic, and that might actually improve your chances. Because you're yeah. one of those people who goes, "No, I refuse to fail. I refuse to have anything except." like world changing success with this. And when I hear that, I'm like, man, failure is always an option. Like yes. in my racket, I always be thinking about that because you make dumb decisions if you think you can't fail. Yeah. Right. Well, and, uh, and the, but the thing is that the business climate now for a lot of these people is like, I have no interest in making this a viable business. I want to sell this company. Talking about growth hacking. <laughs> <laughs> growth hack. Uh, so, so I, as I look around the world and, 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 and I definitely felt this about that television show. It's like there are people who make a lot of sense telling me that, or rather asking me the, with a knowing eye, who's going to watch your show? And they know the answer. And the answer is nobody. Or the answer is not enough people to sell ads to make it profitable. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting on the other side saying, you know, you have this special knowledge of who watches things and you're using that special knowledge to say it's imp- that, you know, and invariably the people say, I would love that show, but nobody's going to watch it. And so what they're saying is the kind of the old classic standby, like it would be, we could make a better world if only people weren't so dumb. And since they are, we can't make a better world. We can only give them what they want to buy. And so mm-hmm. we're so those of us who know that things could be better are hamstrung by the fact that we we can't know we can't make things better, and it's the you know it's the dark side of letting the market economy be the church of of your thinking, mm-hmm. where it's like yeah we could make amazing things we could make we could make beautiful television we could make television that was uh you know that was for the ages. But sadly, no one would buy it, and so there's no point in making it anyway. Thanks for coming. We're going to go back to our, you know, uh, toddler t- toddlers and tiaras. And you see the same thing also in city government, except people aren't cr- quite so craven. But you do, you know, you go into city government, and you say, hey, there there is a way to do this. We could, you know, we can build affordable housing for middle class families, and people go, we could. But not only that we could, but oh, I would love to be able to do that. But yeah. Wouldn't that's, that that's, be, that's the interesting thing about what you're saying in some ways. Yeah, I want that too. I want exactly what you want. But what my job is, is to sit here and tell you that the realities don't allow it. And so thanks for coming. Sorry uh, that we couldn't make a better world. <laughs> um, you know, if you have another idea that's dumber, be sure to call us up. <laughs> Because we really like where you're coming from, uh-huh. and that you know, and ultimately that is, the, it, it is an argument of the of the market, um, and and all the examples where you say, well, somebody made this thing that nobody thought you know that nobody thought anybody wanted, and then everybody wanted it, and people go, yeah, but not that doesn't happen very often, and. That guy was self good. That's not good for shareholders. It's not good for shareholders. You know, like every once in a while, sure, there's a 
there's a revolution in everybody's thinking. Every once in a while, the strokes come along and they sound just like Iggy and the Stooges and nobody knew that that's what they wanted right then. Nobody in, nobody in the year 2000 said, you know what I would like? A young, cute, less abrasive Iggy and the Stooges. <laughs> that sounds kind of like the Velvet Underground too. Could you make that? And then these kids made it. And for a year, all anybody wanted to listen to is that first Strokes record. And you go, wow, that was a thing that, I mean, I was, I was in the process of making a record during those same months and never occurred to me uh, to make a, you know, or to, to make a record that sounded exactly like Joy Division. You can't, you can't, I mean, yeah, God, you remember that, but you, you can never replicate the timing and circumstances. As my friend, uh, my friend and I, John Gruber and I did a panel at South by Southwest a few years ago. And the phrase we were using is like, oh, I, I mean, I, I, you know, it's not a question of like how you're going to be, as Ira Glass says, is how you're going to be Ted Koppel. Like, how are you going to be who you are? Like, you can't replicate the the so again so obvious but you can't rec- replicate the circumstances and the timing it was never a sure bet that anything was ever going to happen ever really right, right if you're really realistic about it what you sure. you don't want to replicate what somebody didn't go oh, i'm going to be the x of y well no i mean to become the x of y you have to have the same kind of the, the similarities in the spirit i think we've talked about this a million times but you, you don't want to go replicate steve jobs by like you know being mean to people like that's that's not on the face of it going to be super <laughs> useful that's the wrong note to take from that career yeah well and that's the you're absolutely right to say that nothing is ever inevitable because if it if it were everybody would have done it everybody would have done it i mean it's like a time travel paradox (laughs) the the music business is full of people trying to put the you know put the formula to work Mm -hmm. and say okay here here comes the next band that you are gonna love everybody and then the next band comes along it's like nobody gives a fuck yep um but there are but it but but i cannot succumb to the idea that the that the the lay intellectual can't ever engage with the world in any way other than just writing opinion pieces for the local newspaper you know mm-hmm. like they're the the or the, just 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 donating and just leaving positive comments that your yeah. your role in this is to participate in the machine that that we've all agreed can't be changed like like we need to we need, we are so siloed and so much a culture of the cult of expertise and some of those things absolutely require expertise like pediatric brain surgery and even i would argue are you referring to ben carson <laughs> are, are you is that is that an unintentional reference or do you know what you're saying there uh, how is that? Well, ever? I, I'm just. I, it's That's funny you should say question. that. No, I, I've been holding this because it's not relevant. But I, I, I went to the uh, Wikipedia page for Republican presidential candidates, and at the current rate, the rate of the of uh, Sunday, today's Monday, as we record this, and Tuesday, you had uh, one one person announced May third. We had another announced May fourth, and a third is expected to announce on on May fifth. Ben Carson, the guy from. Um, May 3rd, author and former director of pediatric neurosurgery for Johns Hopkins. <laughs> Isn't that he, hilarious? Uh, he holds some very strange views, Ben Carson does, about how the world, uh, how the world shakes out. But he is an expert pediatric brain surgeon. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to derail you. I just no, didn't no, no, know if that was un- intentional. It's, uh, it's quite all right. There are, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for role models everywhere. 
million stories in the naked city. The uh, the guy that really knows how to adjust the uh, the 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 quadrajet carburetor, uh, the Rochester uh, quadrajet carburetor on my truck, has a kind of expertise that is akin to restoring a, a, a Stradivarius. But there are lots of other jobs, and I really do feel like CEO of a 25-person company is one of those jobs that almost anybody could do. And I know that that, <laughs> you know, I know that that is, uh, that's going to get uh, some people mad, but... Uh, uh, Especially those, the growth hackers. But those people are wrong. But, you know, like, every single friend I have could be the CEO of a 25-person company. Every single one of them. Because you, it takes a while to figure out how, what, what the company makes, and then it takes a while to figure out where the company sits in the, in the landscape, and then you need to start figuring out how the, the company can do better. Hmm. And, those, yeah, and, and that learning process, what does the company make? Where does the company sit? That stuff should not be that difficult for a, for a, a normally intelligent person to figure out. And then where, how does this company get better? And if this company needs to grow to get better, then that's one direction. And if this company does not need to grow but just needs to get better, that's another solution. But any reasonably intelligent person can address that, that set of circumstances and, you know, and move forward um, in an interesting way. Anybody that I know. Uh, to be the CEO of a of a forty thousand person company, mm-hmm. at that point you you have to be a you have to be really good at um, at flowcharts. Or I mean, you know, you, you have just, to really you'd have to have so many complementary skills that are always evolving. And you'd have and and the primarily, or the primary one would be know how to hire good people, mm-hmm. right? The to to manage your divisions, but twenty five people working on a on a project, if you are a good if you're a good person and not a not a megalomaniac, um, you should be able to handle that that project. It's not it's not rocket science. What about the part you said something earlier about uh, that feeling of like the getting up in the morning thing of like climbing the mountain and hoping there's something on the ridge? Isn't there something to be said for the people who are able to motivate people sight unseen on some kind of a goal that that seems ridiculous or non-existent? That's not, you- that's not just delusional, right? How do you mean uh, motivate people? Sign well, if up you're at a startup, let's say, let's mm-hmm. say you're at a startup, and boy, I'm so glad we're finally talking about startups. <laughs> but like, if let's say you're at a growing company, let's just say a small growing company. Okay, small growing company, maybe say maybe for 25 instance, people, maybe, maybe in the Bay Area. <laughs> God, maybe, please, maybe producing a some. So kind sorry, of- I said anything. I already yeah. hate this topic. <laughs> um, no, but I mean, there, there is. It seems like there's something to be said for like you know, in addition to all the kind of the the, the change and the stress and the dealing with the funding and all that kind of stuff, that ability to maintain the confidence of people who could very easily get a job anywhere else. It seems like that would take a certain, I could see that taking a special kind of skill, even with up to 25 people. Cause you know, you're kind of showing your own credibility, the company's credibility, everything's changing all the time. You know what I mean? Maybe I watch too much Silicon Valley, but, but that seems like, that seems like, like that is kind of a special thing to be able to do. You'd have to have a high level of, as we say in D and D, you know, constitution and charisma to be able to pull that off. Even if you're young, my sense is that, that now, uh, that the business climate, it does require those things because the because it's a game it's all about you know grow fast 
fill a niche, keep nimble, Mm -hmm. you know, sell high. Everybody gets rich. Everyone is motivated in that business by the possibility, the very real possibility that at 27 years old, they're going to be like astoundingly rich Mm -hmm. all of a sudden one day. And that's so different from from actual business like mm-hmm. when you think about the oh, people that's a really that, good point from, right? from 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 being just uh like for example if you've got a, a business that may be public but has been like operated by a family like just that just that feeling of like how do i make sure i not screw up what my what my what my mother and my father and my grandparents like what they you know what i mean that constant yeah. feeling of like they've made something great and now it's up to me to screw it up well, and you think about, I mean, there are people in our world now who are practicing a different kind of business, right? The guys that start a company that makes bicycles and they're making, they've improved their design and they're making a better bicycle. And they're not thinking, I'm going to sell this bicycle company to Schwinn. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm going to get a, I'm going to make a million dollars. They are legitimately like reflecting on the world as it is and saying, I'm going to go back to doing something like manufacturing bicycles and that's going to be my peace of mind and I'm going to have a quality of life. And maybe, maybe there's a quality differentiator in the bikes and you charge more. Yeah, right. They're, You're trying they're to make a sustainable business based on something that you care a lot about and are good at. And that is the... That is the old-fashioned way of looking at business where you're not... you know, Where the product is the entire story. And everything else in your business is designed toward the product, mm-hmm. and the and and you know efficiencies are there. You, you, you try and make it profitable so that everybody can make a living wage, but the product tells the story. And increasingly, this other style of business where it's like, well, the product, sure. I mean, uh, we we haven't even really decided what the product is, but we have. <laughs> All we know uh, is we're growth hacking it. You know, but we have seven different layers of like sea level management. And one of these days, and already we're getting looked at by these people who are thinking about, you know, flushing us with cash. And, you know, maybe we'll make an app that uh, makes a bong when it turns off. <laughs> uh, maybe we'll make a, a speaker that you can suction cup to your chest. Like there are a lot of things we could be building. We haven't quite figured that out yet. And that style of business is, you know, it's like Bitcoin farming. It's, it's something that maybe is going to make you rich and it, it takes up a lot of your day. And like you say, it requires that you be charismatic and that you convince people. Uh, but it isn't about really like making anything that helps anybody or making anything at all in some cases. That's an interesting edge case though, because talking about motivation in some ways though, even though the motivation is to me, you know, insane or, mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. you know, m- nearly magical. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's one thing where most of the players in that industry do share a motivation, which is like, I want all of the money as fast as possible. I want all the money as fast as and possible. And the VCs that are getting, you know, 90% failure rates because of the, you know, ten percent that uh-huh. pay off. Like they, they, you know, they're not, they're not doing that because they like you. They're doing that because they think they're going to make a ton of money from you. Right, and that is why, like, libertarianism is the political, uh, like, realm of choice for a lot of those people because they don't, you know, because when they do hit the numbers, when the money does come pouring in, they really do believe that they made it out of thin air, and that they don't owe anybody that they didn't you know that they're not part of a community that they're part of a this genius level tier of of 
of Bitcoin farmers. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, and we're, we're seeing it in Seattle. Like uh, Jeff Bezos really does believe that um, I guess the streets were already there when he got here. So, He's grandfathered in. <laughs> yeah, so he doesn't really have a sense of how they got put there or how they're maintained, but he doesn't care. Um, like the money he's making is because he was because he's a he's a genius. Well, can I ask you a question related mm-hmm. to that? Um, of course. As far as how the campaign is going, mm. um, the people when you talk to people, and I'm, I'm have to imagine there are some people who are like, "This is not plausible. You don't have the experience, or whatever." Like, who are the people you find most interesting in terms of believing in what you're doing? Apart from just the the relief of having somebody go, "I think that's that's doable and that's a good idea, and I would support that." Who do you think are the most interesting or surprising people lining up to go? Oh yeah, this is a terrific idea. We've got to do this. What's really cool is that. You know, that initial sense of like, well, what the guitar player wants to be on city council, he doesn't have the experience necessary. The, to, weird, the weird rock candidate. Yeah, that guy uh, <laughs> uh, who was doing a show at the Rendezvous last year wants to be um, on the city council. He doesn't have the experience. And invariably, when I sit with one of those people and talk to them for a very short amount of time, they're like, oh, you are absolutely uh, a great candidate for this job. And you, you can, you can absolutely do this. And then they lean in and they go, but here's what you need to know. And then they start telling me a a similar thing to the TV producer. Like you really need to dumb this down. You, you, the, the words that you use are too big. You Mm -hmm. spend a lot of time, uh, really like the, the word that I keep hearing is ideating. You keep ideating with these thought storms and you really need to just have the, the three takeaways, the bullet points, the, 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 the quick and dirty. And, I'm hmm. rec- and, and I've been fighting it uh, for weeks. Like I don't think in bullet points. I don't talk in bullet points. I don't want to do it. I, I, re- I resist it. And lately I've been hearing a more new – because I'm meeting a lot of people. You know, I've been, I spent all last week calling, cold calling lawyers – like powerful lawyers in town saying, hi, I'm John Roddick. I'm running for city council. You're a big shot lawyer or a big shot developer. And I need to talk to you on the phone. I need you to have heard my voice. I need you to know my name and I need to hear from you what you think the problems facing the big shot lawyers and developers are in town so that I don't go into this gladiator contest unarmed. Hmm. And, you know, and they 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 talk to me for a little while, and then they're like, "Oh, you you are completely viable." You know, their initial response is like, "Who? What? You're the artist?" And then we talk for a while, and then they're like, "All right, well." And then so then they get their voices get softer, and they lean in and they say, "Listen, you need the you need the bullet points. Like you can you can you can talk ideate all you want in in between, but you need to start every conversation with your three bullet points and end every conversation with it because that's all anybody's going to remember." Wow. And somebody said to me the other day, they were like, it's like the chorus of a song. Can you get this through your head? Nobody remembers the verse. Mm-hmm. Everybody sings the chorus. And I'm like, the fucking chorus of the song. Good that's Lord. A, that's C, and ironically enough, it's a perfect example of exactly what they're advising. Mm-hmm. Take something that is really, really difficult to understand, let alone do, and turn it into something anybody could, especially somebody who's a writer, could instantly understand. Instantly understand and repeat over and over. And then when somebody's on the bus and they're like, I'm voting for John Roderick, and the person next to him goes, what's he stand for? They go, ooh, child, things are going to get easier. You know, like they sing the chorus. And then the person sitting next to him on the bus that's never going to think about it again 
when the ballot comes, they're like, oh, that's right, that guy that sings Ooh Child, uh, I'll vote for him. And so that part of the thing is is blowing my mind. But but um, but but does describing in that way make it seem more palatable? It still is against my nature. Even somebody, even as someone who has written a book of tweets, uh, I love to communicate it in 140 characters. But when somebody says, "What's your solution to the housing problem?" Mm-hmm. to give them a 140 character response is anathema to me. Right? I want to talk about how the housing problem is too complicated to solve with a tweet. Uh, but. And they are receptive to hearing that, but they want to hear the tweet also. Yeah. And so that has been, you know, I've been talking to a lot of experts and everybody is, you know, they're the people that I'm talking to that were the most dubious about it are starting to realize like, oh, uh, this is possible. And I mean, obviously I'm reading and learning by leaps and bounds. Mm -hmm. And so... I do every week encounter a kind of moment where it's like I am learning an an entirely new profession and also the language of it. So it's like I'm it's like I'm studying engineering and I'm also learning French. Oh right. Hey, that was very well put. Right? Because the because the because my engineering school is in France. Yeah. And um yikes. And and yet like I uh I'm enjoying every step of that process and there are lots of places along the way where where I realize that the culture in Seattle politics especially is traditionally very incremental. There's a lot of lip service liberalism where people are just like, of course I'm a liberal. Look at this. I voted for this. I voted for that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, right. None of those were imaginative. You never stuck your neck out. No one ever took a risk. It's just... You're just plodding along. Doing oh, that's interesting. Business. It's almost like being a U2 fan. Where you go, well, I've always been a U2 fan. I remember <laughs> liking them a lot. It never occurred to me to not be a U2 fan or to really question, you know what I mean? Not yeah. to bag on U2, but it's like you start to think of yourself. It was a long time before I went, hmm, I still, I think I would personally like the guys in R.E.M., but I don't know that any of their music like I used to be. Like, Well, it's the Dave, it's the Dave Matthews story, yeah. right? Yeah. At, at, at some point... A long, long time ago. <laughs> Gather around, children. The first time you heard, the first time people heard a Dave Matthews song, they were like, huh, that's an interesting vocal style, and that's an interesting song or two. And he built a, a massive cultural movement <clears throat> by not ever changing that uh, even a little bit, hmm. right? He never went, he never picked up an electric guitar. He never made a ska record. He never, he never changed his name and put on a and and made a and grew a soul patch and made a grunge album. Um, <laughs> that was so weird. He never. <laughs> I forgot about that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like uh, Taylor Swift used to be a country star. She's not anymore. Nobody even remembers that she was really she pivoted. Uh, but, but. Uh, Dave Matthews is just keeps on keeping on, mm-hmm. and I don't know how many records he's made, and I don't know if you could take if you took a song off the latest one and a song off the first one and put them back to back. I, I think they would sound like they belonged in the same, not but, only in the same canon but on the same album. To, to your to your point though, um, and I, I don't know anything about Dave Matthews. I don't mean to sound like I'm disparaging him. I just know he's got that that big violin player, and he goes, yeah. But 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 in your analogy. I think you're you're on to this, this to something interesting, which is you say like, well, I I never really 
paused to, on the one hand, like I was saying, I haven't really paused at any point to consider how much I really am still a, a fan whatever of the old stuff or the new stuff. But I also, that really, that ultimately means that I have not fully processed the new information in order to realize that I'm actually way more into it or that I'm actually maybe thinking I should be listening to someone else because it's very comfortable. It's very comfortable to say like, Oh, this is, I have every confidence that I'm a Sloan fan. Well, I haven't listened to that many new Sloan albums and been super into them since like 2001. Yeah. It's honest. And I'm not, again, there's always, they're like Cheap Trick. They've got a great song on every record, but I haven't been bananas over a new album of theirs in a long time. And even when I kind of, I, I was still kind of like going, like, I'm really into Sloan, so I must love this record, even yeah. if I didn't. And, and that, that is exactly what happens to people in their political process. They're yeah. like, this is how it works. This is the tempo at which it moves. These are the people to whom we entrust this job. And so, Change cannot possibly come any faster than this. Obviously, these projects take years and years of contentious, you know, budget disagreement to even begin. And, and we just sort of settle into this like, well, this is, I mean, I've been a, I've been a Sloan fan for years and I'm, I guess I'm still a Sloan fan. Like the, the, there's no, the, the energy that is required of you as a fan or as a citizen just sort of ebbs and you just you just coast and then every once in a while something comes along that forces you to to get excited or really makes everything different all of a sudden right right and you know you either make that transition or you don't but also with the with and this is, I'm probably stating the obvious but also with with the political part of what you're describing uh, just to put a slightly finer point on it it is you're talking about the difference between how you like to think about yourself versus how you think people should govern, mm-hmm. which are so different. It's one thing to go, hey, you know, I uh, I, uh, I, don't know. I've always considered myself an REM fan. I used to buy the shirts. Like, that doesn't really have, like a, like, a huge impact. But it's just there's something that's so comforting about knowing I'm this sort of person. I'm a Dave Matthews sort of person. I'm, I'm not a Metallica sort of person or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think – but. But you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it isn't like you're really pausing to think about, on the one hand, like, do I really like their new stuff? But maybe maybe further to the point, like, do I really like their old stuff that much still? And is that okay? <laughs> like, do you really want the Pixies to reunite? Because the Pixies today are going to make mi- – Pixies are going to make music that's very different probably. And if it's not, then is that a leap forward for them? When Rush started changing, I got really pissed. When they yeah. put out Subdivisions, I was like, this is not what Rush should sound like. Roll the bones! And so you become that guy, like me and R.E.M., you're like, oh, I really like everything up to life, life first pageant, you know? And, that's, well, and, and I think with, you know, with government, like, there's a, there's a real tendency for people to say, of course I believe that, you know, of course I believe X. Of course I believe that, that we should house the homeless. Or of course I believe that we should regulate the banks. Or of course I believe, you know, of course. But... It's very hard to do those things. God, that, that of course has so much wrapped up in it. If you really think about it, yeah, right. It's, it's really, it's really powerful in a not very good way. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, of course, I'd love to change. Like you said, of course, I'd love to change this industry. Right. But ca- call me back if you've ever got something better for a TV show. Exactly. Right. Of course, I, uh, it's black- not. Of course, it's not. Of course, enough that I'm actually going to invest in it. It's of course enough that it agrees with my general comportment about life. Right. Of course, Black Lives Matter. But boy. <laughs> You know, what, what are they really asking? John, all lives matter. <laughs> right. And it's, it's just like <laughs> that, of course, allows people to say, 
of course I'm a liberal or of course I'm a, a, a politically active or of course. It makes you sound very uh, sane, reasoned and uh, and realistic. That's right. Realistic. It makes you sound realistic because you're not going, well, you know, because again, what are you always, almost always talking about? You're talking about a shift in attention or you're talking about a change in not priorities, but sacrifice. Like, what are we willing to spend on this? Uh, in order to get this thing made, what do we not spend money and time on? Which is right. a huge difference between like, yeah, in an ideal world, uh, we'd all get to live in cosplay Pinocchio or whatever. Like you, you come up with these, these bananas things. And, these, and, and all the saner heads, all the people who are like, well, now hold on just a second. There's a whole, you know, there's a budgeting process and, you know, uh, this is going to be too disruptive. You know, uh, we can't, even if there are aliens living under the Arctic Ocean and they are controlling our one world government, you can't <laughs> tell everybody about it. We have to go slow. It would freak people out. And even if that's maybe a bad example, as a, if, speaking as a candidate, is it? Um, is it? <laughs> I sound very realistic to me. But the you know that that idea, uh, not the idea, but the pose of of course I agree with you, but I am sane, and we need to go slowly. Like you're because, talking, like you're talking to a child, and that is so much of what gets done. So much of the politics. At the local level, at the at the national level, is is done in that in that voice of like it would it's gonna like to really reform the banks is gonna be too hard. It just is. So of course I want to call me back when you have a, a dumber idea for a television show. <laughs> And you go. Take, take your time. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes you have to say, no, fuck you. Like it's, and, uh, you know. And, Follow me to Poughkeepsie. Uh, and the, and the excitement of me, uh, of running for office right now is that it feels, it feels like this is the, the time at so many levels to just say, no, no. I, I mean, I, I said this the other day, like my house the 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 market has informed me mm-hmm. that my house which was 10 years ago worth $200,000 and then 7 years ago was worth $400,000 and then 5 years ago was worth $200,000 again <laughs> and now it's worth $400,000 again and you're telling me that that is like the sensible uh like the market is the adjudicator. Of well, obviously, value. you've been doing something right. <laughs> <laughs> you've added that value just by being there. There I was. And Aren't then, you and, smart? And the, and the house didn't have any value, and then it had a lot. You were of, dumb it, for a while there around 2008. You were really fucking stupid, but now yeah. you've got it wired. Good and job, so John. You are. You got to be super smart now. And it's basically <laughs> like I'm like playing roulette, mm-hmm. and that <laughs> is. But but none of us, and we all go like that's crazy, but. What can you do about it? It's the market. It's the, it is the church. It's our one true God. And the market just tells us. And, then we, and the market isn't something. It's not one guy. It's, it's the whole. It's everybody. And we just all decide and we See, follow The thing along. is, though, you're not naive. You're, you, you're, you're not naive enough to, I don't think. Mm-hmm. You're, 
it would take a lot of naivete to go, I'm going to come in and shake everything up and it'll be really easy. And then, how do you know, what's your internal barometer for knowing which furniture can still be moved around, which, which shouldn't be tampered with? And how do you decide between five things that could change potentially? That's a big question, but pick whatever part you want. But right. you know, it seems like to go into this, you, you don't want to be a dummy. You don't want to just go in and go, oh, you know, I, I assume that I can change the entire way politics works. Right. Like, what are the parts where you go, I'm just going to have to... I'm just going to have to live with that because that's that part is not going to change. I mean, at, at every step of the way, there are vested interests and there are people that are going to say you can't do that. And the, there, and the thing is that when you're talking about a city government, right there, the city is also inside of a county and the county is inside of a state mm-hmm. and the state is inside of a, of a country. And all of those other jurisdictions also have laws that apply and affect the city. And you can't just say like, well, I'm going to change the state law. Oh, stuff that's going to be happening above your pay grade. You know, where, where, where initially when I first started talking about the police, I was like, well, the police should live in the neighborhoods they police. That seems like a no-brainer. That's kind of like the old times, right? When the guy in Chicago swinging his billy club walking down the street in, in his own neighborhood. Well, then I started reading up on it and I learned a few things. One, the state of Washington prohibits municipalities from uh, requiring that the, their officers live in their neighborhoods. You're kidding. No, because that was there was a time when the police union said that's unfair, and uh, you know, and some of those cases probably went all the way to the Supreme Court. You can't force people to live a certain place. I had a conversation the other day with a dad at school, really cool guy, with really cool kids. I see him at the comic store all the time. They're they're very cool, and he just kind of offered up out of nowhere that oh no, I we uh, no, no I, w- I would never. He's like I work in. XYZ city. I live in San Francisco. He's like, I would you, your cop, cop living in the same town that he works in. It was kind of a Spider-Man thing where it's like, it wouldn't be safe. He feels like it's not safe to live where you work. Right. And that, have you heard that? I thought that's very interesting. That's crazy on the face of it. But I, but you know (laughs) what, what happened was the police said, look, we can't, uh, we're, we're not making very much money and we can't afford to live in the in the city or right. you know there are a lot of arguments why you can't say if you want to if you want to work here you have to live in this neighborhood or something so but the state but the, but they took that to the state the state made a law so now the city can't require that well then i started reading you know reading up on the topic it turns out mm-hmm. they've done studies of uh of lots of municipalities some of them do have rules that the police have to live in the city some of them don't and the cities that have that require their police to live in the city do not have any better police outcomes, in some cases dramatically worse police outcomes. Oh, interesting. Wow. And what it turned out was that the biggest factor for improving your police is high quality training of your police. Ideally in a transparent glass building in the middle of town. Right? With an exercise. <laughs> Wasn't that facility. your plan? That's right. And then and then they run through the streets in in uh sweats that say police trainee. And they're sweeping, sweeping, sweeping. <laughs> but but the but you know, high tr- high quality training is where is where you get good police. Hmm. And then you go, Oh, duh. Right, of course. High quality training. It won't matter you, where they live if they're well trained. That's right. And mm-hmm. so, you know, the evolution of those uh, the evolution of my thought, at least on that matter, was really affected by the fact that I came up against state law, which was like, yeah, well, we, we've already we've already been through this, and if you want to go to the state, if you want to if you want to propose a law and take it to the state and say we need to require the police to live in our cities, you can go down that rabbit hole, um, and 
if you win, you win, and if you lose, you lose. But are, what do you want? Do you want the symbolic victory of right. that? Do you want to be able to say that? I believe that that is going to work. Or, or, or. It's, first of all, this sounds very wise, but it's also like you're like, oh, well, you know, guys. I came back to your thing from a couple of weeks ago. I campaigned on this. Like this mm-hmm. is this mm-hmm. is a real um, a tentpole of my campaign. I can't change even my mind about this. Right. Let alone my dedication to this. It doesn't matter whether it's right or wrong. This is why I'm here. I can read 25 studies about a thing, but since I've gone out and said this already, I can't change my mind on this because it's going to make me look like a waffler. And then then in that case, expertise is getting in your way. Well, yeah. If you're a scoundrel. (laughs) If you're a scoundrel. And the expectation that we have that politicians can't publicly change their mind and say, I read some things. I talked to some people that are smarter than me about this. Mm -hmm. Now I have a different opinion about it. And the new thing is actually within our ability to do, which is to which is to require that our police be trained at a high level and that is measurable and it doesn't require that we uh, that we change state laws what it does require is that all the people out there who are chanting force the police to live in our neighborhoods you have to now convince them who mm-hmm. were formerly your allies and who now have every reason to believe that you've been corrupted mm-hmm. by exposure to the elements that have made that impossible in the past as well. Mm-hmm. And so you go back to your original constituency and you say, look, I've, hey learned, <laughs> I've learned some stuff. I'd like you to read these things. And they're like, they feel like you're a, a sellout and a traitor. And you're like, oh, I, no, I, I'm, I, what I want is a better police department. Right. Same thing you want. But now you've, you know, now you've crossed the spiritual line of challenging the thing that you all used to agree just sounded like the solution. So that, that process is like a process of maturation Mm -hmm. that requires that you have some integrity inside and a lot of people. But clarity also the clarity of making, making sure you fully understand. It sounds like it's a, it's good for you because you go, Oh, that's, I can learn a new thing. And that was good. But it also helps you really clarify the problem statement. Like, you know what I mean? The way you frame that to yourself and to others will say like, well, you know, it still matters for us to have a police force that does these following things. And now I've learned a thing here. And what you discover is that some people, what they really just want to do is punish the police or punish the developers or punish the banks. And when you come, you come back and you're like, I looked into this more mm-hmm. and it turns out that this thing that we thought was going to really help us is like not as good a case as this other thing. And it's a nightmare to administer. Yeah. But people <laughs> are like that one, even though it doesn't work and is a nightmare to administer and is really expensive, it punishes them more. And that's what I want. It turns out what I want is to shame and punish the who the people that I think are the bad people. You can get, I bet you get so much uh, traction with people in certain quarters with that approach. Well, and that, that's uh, typically who runs for public office are the people that stand up and say, I am so mad at the cement contractors. Big cement. Fucking cement contractors are pouring shitty cement and we are going to punish them. And the cement contractors are like, well, you know, actually, we, 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 we like to pour good cement too. It's just the... The contract stipulated that, and they're just like, shut up, you contractors. You're going to suck a tube of cement on my watch when I'm the big cheese around here. And you get this, and then you get city government where those, you know, those people go into office. That's why you have all those conversations with people where they, you know, it's that Mitt Romney and the 46% or whatever his gaffe was. When he gets around people that he thinks 
he can talk to. Yeah. All of a sudden, he's like, "All right, we all know the deal, right?" Right, right. And that, as soon as you are sitting in office and you're and you're talking to some people, like with the Clinton thumb, pointing at them with the Clinton thumb, going, "We need to blah, blah, blah. and then mm-hmm. another group of people, you're like, "You're really leaning in and kind listen, of whispering." <laughs> listen, you know the real deal here, right? Right. Aliens pay no attention living, to the thumb. <laughs> living under the Arctic ice cap, and they're running our government Turns through chemtrails. But we're not going to say that to people. And then it's like, oh, sorry, the the bus boy was filming the whole thing. So what about Gitmo? I believe my city council uh, candidacy believes that we should close Gitmo. <laughs> uh, it's not the question I meant, but I like your answer better. Uh, 